Jim Bennett. Welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you this morning? Oh, I'm just fine. How are you, sir? Good, good. Here we are. We're back for part seven. You and I had talked that we would uh, we would do the the interview uh, about the the various issues that we covered. Uh, when we got finished with that, we said let's let's give it a little bit of time. At least on my end, I wanted to give it a little bit of time, see what the responses were, and then come back and kind of uh, revisit that interview and just have a conversation about uh, maybe looking back thoughts on. Uh, places maybe where our minds change, places maybe where we thought like, hey, yeah, maybe I need to change my my argument a little bit there or, or my uh, perspective a little bit there. But I want to start off, uh, and again, we're talking with Jim Bennett. Uh, Jim Bennett had written a response to Jeremy Runnels in the CES letter and uh, just thought it would be fun to sit down with him and to cover kind of the issues in there. And, and yes, I know this came out afterward, but one of the issues that we, we added that was not in the CES letter was the LGBT issue. And mainly because I think in order to cover race and priesthood and to have a conversation about prophets, the LGBT issue is a modern example. And so I, I wasn't trying to throw it out to say like, haha, here's this new thing and, and get you. I know that before each episode, I, I shared with you kind of what ground I wanted to cover. I know before the, the interview started, that I had shared kind of a, a rough list of all the topics I wanted to cover. I just thought that the LGBT issue and the race and the priesthood kind of go hand in hand and in, in some ways display some of the same questions and point us to having to kind of reconcile those in similar ways. But I wanted to start with this question. A lot of people have been... So, so let me say this too. Um, I thought you were as kind and as considerate uh, in those first six episodes as somebody could be sitting across the table from somebody who disagrees with them. And I felt, Jim, like a lot of the responses that came back hit on something that you and I both wanted to accomplish, which was to show that two people who disagree would come up with different conclusions could sit and have a kind conversation respecting each other, even as they pushed each other where they disagreed. And I, w- I bet about half the responses that came in were simply people who said they were just grateful that the conversation took place, and they were grateful that the two of us displayed a way to tackle that kind of idea without attacking each other. And I just want to say thank you to you for, for being the kind of person that you are. Well, that's very kind of you, and I certainly felt the same way during the conversations. I felt like you were kind and respectful um, with regard to the LGBT issue. We certainly discussed that we were going to discuss it. I didn't feel like that was something that was brought up uh, without my—I I didn't feel ambushed on those, if that makes any sense. Uh, my, I, I, and, you know, I've gotten a whole host of responses— uh, privately, I've gotten emails. I put my email address on your page, and I've gotten a whole bunch of Facebook messages. And uh, the overwhelming majority of them, in fact, I can't think of any of them that haven't been kind and haven't been. And people have just said, "I'm very grateful for this." Some have, have agreed with me, some have not. Uh, but universally, the messages that I've gotten privately. Have, have been very kind and reflective of what you've just said with regard to the reactions that you're seeing. So so that's been consistent with the reactions that I've been seeing. Beautiful, um, beautiful. I, uh, what I wanted to ask you is kind of to counterbalance that, which is a lot of people have reached out in, in uh, 
other places, I'm not talking about in connection with this interview, but in other places where they're just talking about your response to the CES letter. And a lot of them say, like, I don't like the snarkiness of it. I don't like the sarcasm. Right. Um, some people have pointed to it being ad hominem, which I'm not, I'm not comfortable with because I don't see you attacking Jeremy Runnels on a personal level. Um, but, but looking at the CES letter, it certainly has kind of a sarcastic, humorous tone to it. I'm just curious maybe what your thoughts were. One, when you did that doing it, and then two, my question is like, is there a better way in which, just like you and I had a conversation, is there a better way in which the the critic, because the critic does it too, the critic of the church, as well as the person defending the church, is there ways that in writing that we can tackle these things like the CES letter, but do so without that? Or is that kind of a thing necessary to keep people interested? In other words, the CES letter's long. Adding some humor, even if it's a little sarcastic, does serve a purpose. It keeps somebody kind of interested a little more as they're plugging along and maybe getting bored with the data points. Maybe your thoughts on kind of going forward, if you if you like the way you've done that, or if there's been any thoughts of like revisiting the tone of the letter and um, any commentary you've got along those lines. Well, I, and I just wrote up a blog post yesterday talking about this, because since the first version of the CES letter came out, um, or I'm sorry, since my first version of my reply came out, uh, I've gotten accusations that said all you did was attack Jeremy Runnels. And I have legitimately said, could you please point out an area where I have attacked Jeremy Runnels so that I can remove it? Because that was not my intent. I have nothing personal against Jeremy Runnels whatsoever. Um, and uh, I, I don't see any value in attacking Jeremy Runnels or attacking any critics. Uh, at the same time, I don't see anything wrong with being um, as forceful and, and as combative as possible with regard to arguments. You know, I, I, I'm more than willing to attack a bad argument. I am not willing to attack a person. And to date, no one has been able to actually demonstrate, okay, here's where you call Jeremy Runnels names. Here's where you say nasty things about Jeremy Runnels because it's simply not in there. And then one guy, he wrote back, and he was actually saying, I really enjoyed your conversations with Bill Reel but I didn't enjoy your CES letter reply because all of its ad hominem stuff made me nauseous. And I wrote back and I said, as I've said every time someone said that, can you please point out where I've attacked Jeremy Runnels? And he wrote back, and then I sort of wrote back to him. And, you know, I look at that and say, you know, my CES reply has been out there for two years now. It's been, it's been modified the second the second version of it um i think has a little less patience for bad arguments than the first one did uh but at the same time neither one attacks jeremy runnels in any way shape or form and and so if it's sarcastic if it's uh, any of that all of that stuff is directed at the arguments it's directed at at bad facts in some in some spots, and so um, 
I, I, I mean, it, there, there wasn't any kind of deliberate decision to, uh, uh, to, to be sarcastic or to be demeaning or to be any of those kinds of things. Uh, I tend to be kind of a goofy, sarcastic guy, and it kind of gets me in trouble in some spots. I, I th well, this is kind of a tangent, but uh, you know, I'm I'm now in the Tabernacle Choir, um, choir school. I'm not officially in the choir yet, but uh, I have some friends that run a, a website called the Utah Bee. Um, these are friends that have actually left the church, but uh, I said I'd be interested in writing for you, and I thought I'd write um, some experiences that I'm having in the choir. And I submitted an article, and they came back to me, and they said, this is really funny, and this is really fun, and there's no way we're going to publish it. And I said, well, why not? And they said, because you'll probably be kicked out of the choir if we do. Uh, <laughs> I tell a story. Uh, so the, the first day of choir school, Mac Wilberg, the director of the choir, comes down and reads his list of what he calls, you might be disappointed ifs. And he says, you know, you might be disappointed if you join the choir to be a soloist. You might be disappointed if you join the choir to get, to be a TV star. And he goes through this list of things. And I, and then he got to one where he said, you might be disappointed if you join the choir in order to submit original poetry that you want the choir to put to music. And I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. And after that, they were giving us a tour of the of the tunnels underneath Temple Square. It's this huge Mines of Moria down there. And they were giving us this tour, and the guy at the beginning of the tour said, are there any questions? And I raised my hand, and I said, yeah. Are you the guy I submit my poetry to? And I thought that was kind of funny. And uh, he didn't. And that wasn't really kind of an acceptable vibe for the Tabernacle Choir. So, you know, and that, I talked about that in the article and this kind of thing. So if my, if my tendencies toward sarcasm or any of that kind of stuff is off-putting to people, I, I apologize for that. that. That isn't my intent. That just tends to be kind of how I write and kind of how I see things. Uh, but I deliberately tried to avoid attacking anybody uh, personally or, or beating up on anybody. And uh, so I, I, I plead guilty to sarcasm. I do not plead guilty to ad hominem. Yeah, and I, and I agree with that. My, so... I'm putting, you know, essentially putting forward that having looked over the response to the CES letter, I agree with you completely. I don't see a place at all where Jeremy Runnels is attacked for any personal reason. Like, it, it, it's just simply the idea that, hey, you made a bad argument. I'm going to, in some way, maybe make fun of or add some humor to that argument and show why, it's, why I think it's bad. Um, but my question is, maybe coming back to that is what you and I did was very different, which is to allow each other time to explain where we kind of agreed and where we disagreed. Um, there were times where 
I thought what you said is something I hadn't heard before, and I hope at some point here we'll get to that because I want to talk for a moment later on about some of the things that I thought were really interesting in our conversation that caused me to think in new ways. Um, But in that conversation, like when two people who disagree are having a long-form, real-time conversation, allowing each other to push or ask questions, what ends up happening if you can leave like that sarcasm out, which I completely think you did. I didn't feel that at all during the interview. Um, These two people can get together and like allow the audience to not see the disagreement in a binary way. In other words, when let's say fair Mormon, fair Mormon answers a question to a problem in the church and they give a, a completely faithful answer. And then the critic comes in and the critic says like, that answer doesn't work because of this and it's completely wrong. And I, I never feel like that really serves the audience's purpose because what the audience wants to hear is where the apologist is willing to grant that, okay, that is messy. My answer doesn't work the best. The critic's answer works better on this issue. And then to hear the, the critic come in and say like, hey, the apologist made a great point there. They've, they've given a better answer and, and that solves this issue uh, if you'll allow a little bit of allowance, and it's not a it's not a major issue of mental gymnastics, and it seems like that is a better model for people to learn the issues fairly and to arrive at their own kind of conclusion versus both sides standing on a different side of a wall and throwing rocks at each other. And I'm just curious, because I, I do think that Jeremy is attacking at every level as if every argument is strong. He's not he's not in the CES letter taking the time to say like, hey, this argument of mine is weaker, and this argument of mine is stronger. The apologists have no good answer for this problem, but they have some answers for this issue. And, and then on the other hand, you're coming in and saying like, hey, my perspective essentially solves all of these issues. And my hope was in our conversation, and I think we accomplished this, was to say like, ah, it's way messier than that. Both sides are going to have to acknowledge like there there is no binary way of handling these issues. Some of them are messy. Sometimes the critic does have a better answer. Sometimes the apologist has a better answer. And I'm just curious if there's a way to accomplish that in writing without taking up, you know, 20 years to, to put something together. Well, that's a good question. I I mean, I look at that and I look at our conversations and I think that the people who actually listen to the conversations um, get that kind of perspective. Uh, I was was rather frustrated two or three days after the conversations. I think I've calmed down since then. But I, I, I look at the conversation and the things that were written after them uh, particularly your comment as you went about and said, look how much ground Jim Bennett gave up, which made me think maybe this wasn't the kind of conversation that I felt like it was or that I was expecting to be. Maybe this was a debate, and I should have been more on my guard, and I should have been I, – I felt like in some cases that in what was written about this afterwards – my, my anytime I tried to show empathy for a point of view that was not my own, that empathy was to some degree weaponized against me. It was, oh, well, Jim Bennett can, can see my point of view, and by respecting my point of view, he's actually agreeing with my point of view. 
which was not what I was doing. I mean, when, when you went out and were, were telling people, Jim Bennett admits that he wouldn't want his daughter to work in the Smith home, and people who haven't listened to that conversation so that they understand why I would say that uh, would just take that snippet of what was written and say, oh, well, Jim Bennett agrees with Bill Reel that, that Joseph Smith was a sexual predator, and I don't. And so when those kinds of things are, are kind of taken out and just said, look at all these things that Jim Bennett gave up ground on, uh, I felt like what that does is it makes the possibility of future conversations like the ones that we had that much harder because I think people are going to say, well, I don't want to get into this if all this is going to be doing is that everything I say where I'm trying to express empathy or I'm trying to admit that it's not that simple that's going to be taken as a win by the other side. That's going to be a trophy they're going to mount on their wall. Look at all these things where I was able to get Jim Bennett to, to throw the church under the bus. And that's the reason I wrote the Fair Mormon article. Uh, they, they came to me and said, this is what Bill Reel is saying all over the Internet. Um, and I thought, geez, people, you know, how many people are going to listen to 12 hours of conversation and how many people are going to read a short comment that says, here's the list of all the things where Jim Bennett uh, admitted that the church is wrong. And I thought, people need greater context for that. They need to understand that. And so Fair Mormon said, do you want to be on our blog? Or, or, do you want to do a podcast with us? And I said, sure. And they said, well, we're not going to be able to do that quickly. Do you want to just write something up? So I wrote something up, and, uh, you know, I... I went around and looked at um, some comments. I spent maybe about five minutes on the ex-Mormon Reddit, uh, and that was probably five minutes too long, to be honest. Uh, but um, And I thought, okay, I, I need to address this. I need to write this out and, and let people know where I stand on this if they don't listen to the 12 hours of conversation. Because I think that conversation... Uh, allows for that kind of thing, but I think short, th I mean, whenever you're writing something, it, it, it's essentially one-way communication, and so it's you can't have the kind of give and take that we were able to have over 12 hours. And so I think it's a real challenge, and it's kind of difficult to be able to create an environment when you're writing something that's similar to the environment when you're actually having a real-time conversation where both people can push back. No, absolutely. And I want to ask you about the Fair Mormon response. Um, and, and I understand where you're coming from. I, it's, it's, so there's two things that are happening that I think are complicated. One is which to try and, as one side of that interview, to say like, hey, Here's why you might want to listen to this. This is ground that he's admitting is messy and and that there aren't great answers for. It's hard to shorten. But that's not what I, I mean. I wasn't admitting there aren't great answers for it or there aren't answers for it. I, what I was doing was showing empathy for your point of view and admitting that people can disagree with me and still be good people and still uh, and that that there's legitimacy to their point of view in the sense that there's, I, I mean, when you say it that way, it sounds like what I'm saying to you is my answer is not as good as your answer. You're right and I'm wrong. 
And that's not at all, at least what I thought I was saying. What I was saying is I can understand why you would have that point of view. Um, I mean, there these are issues you can look at from a number of different sides. And people who come to a different conclusion than I do uh, can, are intelligent people and are decent people. Uh, but that is not the same thing as saying, I think your point of view is more accurate than mine. And I think when you start talking that way, that's kind of what you're yeah, saying. So maybe, maybe then, all right, so let me take it a different direction, which is I, I understand what you're saying, um, but I think it misses the mark when the fact of the conversations, the, the facts of the conversations are acknowledging like, oh yeah, the church does actually teach us to do harm sometimes. Yes, Joseph Smith did lack fidelity with Emma. Yes, unless we take uh, Joseph Smith's and, and allow him to be the actual author of Abraham 1, 12 through 14, then yes, it doesn't seem to have a good solution. Like, I, I do think in the expanse of those 12 hours, 13 hours actually, 13 and a half, that there are places where you're saying, like, you're right, this data point causes me to have to stand ground in this space, and this space is not helpful to the way the church wants to interpret itself. And so I do think on some level it's not fair to stand back and say, like, I didn't grant any ground and I just made, I just wanted to let you know that I, I appreciate your view and I'm going to make space for it. Like, there are things you conceded. And, and I don't think I was inaccurate in that. It, they may need more context, but that's always going to be the issue whenever you write down uh, how how things go in a long format and try to shorten them to a short format. And so I certainly would hope everybody would listen to those 12 or 13 hours. But I, I let me put it another way too, which is that uh, I had no I had no goal of again playing gotcha, but here's what I I did, and I think I was up front. Like you've written a response to the CES letter, you've um, made it appear again. Jeremy's made it appear like everything's wrong with the church, and then you've and you've come in and, and answered that CES letter and said like we've got answers for all of it. And I think the reality is that when you dive into these issues, the church wants to be interpreted a certain way. It wants to be seen as something. Its truth claims are deeply attached to historical events. And when we have a long-form, real-time conversation, what we do is we expose jointly. Again, it doesn't matter whether it's our motive or not. What happens is the church, church's truth claims and its history and the way it wants to interpret itself is exposed to all of these data points. And when it's exposed, people have to wrestle with how many allowances they make for the church to still be what it claims. And at what point, does if there's too many allowances, does it cross into the realm of being irrational or unreasonable for it to be what it claims? And when you and I have a conversation, again, I thought you argued the the most tenable position that Mormonism could hold. Mormonism would be well to take your perspective and to implement it into as its own. 
because it's the only way that Mormonism seems to even have some level of a leg to stand on. And so there's no attack towards you. Like, I thought you did as well as anybody could do. But when the information is all laid out on the table objectively, what people come to, and again, I think most people who dive deep into the information end up having some serious struggle with the way the church interprets it itself. And um, when people listen to a 13-hour conversation that you and I have, they have to deal with things the church never wants them to deal with, which is Joseph's integrity, his fidelity, how he pushed a vulnerable girl like Lucy Walker, which again, you agreed she was extremely vulnerable. So the things that you agreed with, those things don't come out in a written conversation back and forth against a CES letter, but they do come out in a 13-hour real-time long-form conversation. And the ground that has to be conceded and again, I think you did a good job of conceding where it was necessary. The ground that has to be conceded imposes that the church is going to have to redefine itself because it doesn't, it, 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 it requires so many allowances to be what it claims and, then me- and not mesh against the data that people left and right as they, as they go down this rabbit hole, are going like, wow, this isn't what I grew up with. Wow, this isn't how I, they define prophets for me. Wow, this isn't the Joseph Smith I knew. I didn't, I didn't know Joseph Smith pushed 15, 16-year-old girls and was sealed to a fort. I didn't know these things. I, I, I'm simply saying that people can choose to believe in, let's say, Bigfoot. And Bigfoot is, by scientific standards, it's irrational. Now, it doesn't mean that Bigfoot exists or he doesn't exist, but every human being has to go like, here's the evidence, and, am, and is, are, there, are there too many allowances being required for me to believe in Bigfoot? Uh, a flat earth theory, uh, alien abductions, uh, uh, we didn't land on the moon. There's evidence on both sides of those arguments, but for one perspective, most people go like, oh, that requires way too many allowances for me to believe that that's true. And they then consider that belief irrational. I think when you and I have a long-form conversation, it becomes apparent that Mormonism requires a lot of allowances. And now it's up to every individual to go like, whoa, that's a lot. Am I willing to make those many allowances and for this thing to hold up as true? Or do I you know, draw a line in the sand and say, that's irrational. And, and, I'm, and so I hope that makes sense to you in terms of, I do think you made concessions, um, but I don't think it's as far sweeping uh, in the way that you're defending it. Uh, and I hope that makes sense. Uh, it does. I, 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 think it, I think it highlights, though, that, that we may have been talking past each other for 13 hours more than we realized, or at least I feel like perhaps I was talking past you more than I realized because in what ways? Well, because I, because my goal in this was never to get in here and convince your listeners that the church is true. Uh, My goal in this was never to come in and, and think, okay, by the majesty of my intellect, I am going to persuade Bill real that the way he's looking at the church is wrong and the church is irrefutably true. And the, you know, I I, I wasn't looking at it from that perspective. I I was not seeing it as a debate uh, in any way, shape or form or, or that the, the uh, truth claims of the church 
will rise and fall based on how well I'm able to defend them. Uh, I, I, mean, I, I look at this and say, I, I don't think that I didn't see that as what this discussion was. Uh, for, uh, if that were the case, if the idea were, okay, we're going to sit down and we're going to debate whether or not the church is true, uh, then I think the topics of conversation might have been different, that I might have said, okay, I'm going to come at you with where I think the church has its strongest arguments, and I'm going to make sure that over the course of 12 hours that I'm covering the ground where I think the critics have really weak arguments. And I didn't think that was that was what this was. What I, the, the way I do this, I, I, I look at this, and I thought quite a bit about um, who it is that's actually listening to this. It, it was really interesting to me that I've, I've had absolutely no response from um, faithful active members of the church. Well, no, that's not true. I had one guy in my ward contact me who, who would listen to it, and he had some reactions. But, but uh, for the most part, mo most faithful active members of the church don't know who, well, don't know who Bill Real is and don't really pay any attention to critics one way or the other. It's just not part of their milieu. And I look at the people who have responded to this. You know, I went on, I went on the ex-Mormon Reddit and I read about how um, Jeff Holland apparently was calling me to tell me what I ought to say and, and how financially invested I am in the church and how much money I'm going to lose if I leave the church. And I thought, boy, I'd save a whole, whole lot more money than I'd lose. But, you know, I, and I looked at that and realized that for the most part, I think the people that listen to your podcast aren't doubters per se. I, and, and, and I define that by saying I, I think doubt is a temporary condition. That is, you wrestle with doubt, you struggle with doubt, and you eventually resolve your doubts one way or the other. I wouldn't describe myself as a doubter of Bigfoot's existence, or a doubter that we landed on the moon. I, I firmly believe Bigfoot does not exist, and I firmly believe that we did land on the moon. I'm not wrestled with doubt or uncertainty. Doubt has a, an element of uncertainty, and unbelievers do not have uncertainty. And I think there are a lot of unbelievers that listen to your podcast in order to, for the same reason that conservative Republicans listen to Rush Limbaugh. It's an issue of, it's nice to listen to a validation of my point of view, and, and, and there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, per se. And I wasn't coming on your podcast to talk to unbelievers and convince them that they're wrong. What, what I was trying to do, what I was trying to do both with my CES letter reply and with the podcast, was to demonstrate that it is possible to be confronted by non-believers and be confronted by hard arguments and still come out with a testimony on the other side. And it wasn't to provide definitive answers for any of these. I don't speak for the church. I don't have any ecclesiastical credentials that would say that my answers are better than anybody else's. Uh, they're to say, you know, it's possible to look at this and to look at it from a point of view and still be able to maintain the kind of faith 
that is the reason why I'm a member of the church. I'm not a member of the church because a group of people made really persuasive arguments in a sort of debate-style, long-form discussion where I can logically look at all of these kinds of things and decide, all right, well, you have convinced me by the power of your logic that I should be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The reason why I'm a member of the church is because I've had a direct connection with the divine that has confirmed spiritually in ways that can't be really objectively analyzed in these kinds of discussions. And, and that's the reason why I'm a member. Now, I, you know, so I, and I, and I can already hear the pushback on that. Well, okay, that's not rational. That's not any of those kinds of things. And the reality is, at some point, the only way to have faith is to recognize that faith is indeed, by definition, subjective and and all you can do is say, all right, I've had this experience with the divine. I can't quantify it. I can't do anything but express that there it is, and that's, and that's, and that's the reason why I'm a member of the church. I don't think that faith has to be in opposition to rationality, but I don't think rational arguments are what convince people to have faith. So... So when I look at this, I just say, okay, with all of those things, the, the idea that I'm giving up ground, at no point did I give up faith. At no point did I say, geez, my faith is invalid, and my faith just just can't stand against the power of your rational arguments. I, I don't believe that. I don't think that's the case. Nor is that my argument. That, that feels like a straw man, because that's not my argument at all. I, I don't... I think you understand the issues well, and I think that you recognize that the church has told a story a certain way, and you recognize that when the data is on the table, it compels us to reframe it another way, and you also recognize the allowances that are needed in order to hold that new way together. Well, I, I, I don't think I don't think this is I don't think this is as no. sweeping as you're as you're making it. Well. I don't. I didn't say anything, with the exception of, of LGBT issues, which aren't covered in the CES letter. But I didn't say anything in in our podcast discussion that I that is inconsistent with what I said in my CES letter reply. So you you acknowledge in the CES letter reply that Joseph Smith lacked integrity with Emma. Yes, I do. Okay. Um, all right. So so there are concessions. So here because here's what we run into, which is that I think and again, I think you agree. I know there's some emotion here because I know that you don't want to be painted in a way that you think maybe I'm painting you. And I don't feel like that's the case. I I don't think in any way that you came in and said, like, hey, I believe this, 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 and this, and at the end of the interview, I'm wrong about A through Z. No. What I'm saying is that the church wants its membership to see it in certain ways. And that through our conversation, you acknowledge... You're creating a straw man to some degree. Because, for instance, I, I think one of, the, one of the overriding themes of my CES letter reply is the idea that once you acknowledge that church leaders are human beings who are capable of making mistakes, 
fully 90% of the objections against the church essentially become irrelevant because there's so many places where Jeremy Runnell says, well, look what, look what Joseph Smith did. And if you can just say, okay, well, Joseph Smith was wrong here. Joseph Smith made a mistake here. Uh, that takes the teeth out of almost all of the criticisms against the church. And, and, and when, when you start looking at it that way, uh, the church, I mean, they say, well, the church wants to be seen a certain way. Uh, that, I think, comes from a cultural expectation more than a doctrinal expectation. The church has never argued that the leaders of the church are infallible. The church has repeatedly stated that the leaders of the church are human beings like each of us and that we are imperfect, and they've, they've accelerated uh, those statements in recent times. You, you listen to Jeff Holland talking about the Lord has only had imperfect people to, to, to lead his church. I'm sure it frustrates him, but he deals with it. You've had Dieter Uchtdorf stand up and said there have been times when we've simply made mistakes. I mean, th that message, it, the, the fact that, that culturally the church is inclined to attribute infallibility to its leaders uh, is, is, is not the case that that is the doctrine of the church. All right. So let, let me jump in here for a moment. So here's why... I think it's so much more complicated than that because it's easy for the church to stay back and say, look, we're fallible, cut us a break, that solves everything. But it doesn't. When you get into the heart of these issues, here's what happens. The church puts forth a message. Take your vitamins. Revelation is coming fast and furious. Uh, I shared with you the audio from Elder Cook. I know his voice. I know his face. So... These guys want to convey to the church membership to have confidence in us that we speak the mind and will of God and that God is behind the changes that we make, the small and subtle ones, while at the same time, a long-form, real-time conversation shows that these guys completely miss the mark on really big issues. And so by recognizing like, hey, we're fallible, but we also want you to see us as having this direct connection as you make these small changes, but we also don't want to have a conversation around these big mistakes we made because that hurts the fact that we don't have the connection that we are trying to get you to believe when we ask you to take your vitamins and we tell you we know his voice and we've seen his face. And so the only time that the average member can wrestle with that uh, juxtaposition and to make a decision on their own about whether that really works or whether it doesn't is when someone like Bill Reel and Jim Bennett get together and hash out all of the complexities of that. And Fair Mormon doesn't want to do that. And, and, every, and I'm telling you right now, every critic, every uh, informed critic that I've talked to says, like, I welcome it. Like, let's have a long-form discussion. It's, it's only one side of this, and I'm not talking about you, by the way, because you did it, but there's only one side of this who refuses to sit at the table and have this kind of a conversation because having the conversation is problematic. The conversation itself shows to some degree that the man behind the curtain isn't exactly what the church had that member think it was. 
And so the fair Mormon refuses to have these kinds of conversations. And we can say like, oh, it's because it's because Bill tricked me into having a like that's not the case. You you wrote a response to the CES letter where you're trying to tell members that like, hey, this isn't that bad. We've got good answers here. It works. And I'm not like, hey, I'm going to just I'm going to expose that. But it is like, let's have a long form conversation. and Let's see if that really does hold up as smoothly as we like to say it does. And the reality is, and I think, again, I think you agree, it doesn't. When we dive into the data, it gets really messy and it requires a whole lot of allowances. And again, I'm not saying the church is true or not true. Obviously, I have my own conclusion, but I like the fact that members of the church or ex-members for that matter can listen to the conversation, hear all of these data points talked about, and, and realize like, wow, isn't it beautiful when two people get together and are willing to just lay the information on the table and wrestle with how complex this gets? And I don't think the church or the defenders of the church want anything to do with that format because, again, let me put it this way. When you lay the information on the table as objectively and as fair as you possibly can from both sides, and both sides are willing to take questions and to answer them, the church becomes demonstrably something different than it wants you to think it is. And I think, I think that's not a bad thing. I think this church has to grow up a little bit. And I think on some level, you've acknowledged that. And, and so I wish the apologists would take on these conversations, but it's not good for loyalty or upholding the church's view because it's never going to work in the church's favor. It's, it doesn't mean it's not faithful. I think you presented a faithful position. If anybody in the church comes after you, like shame on them. Um, I don't think you said anything that they should feel like like they have to do anything to punish you. And I don't think you'll get punished for it. But I think what you did do is display a Mormonism that they really don't want discussed. They really don't want to have to water down things to a level that you and I agree once the data's on the table. Well, so in the course of that, of that statement, uh, I think you made an assumption about a concession that I made that I didn't make. For instance, the idea that the prophets and apostles have no connection to Christ. Uh, I don't think I said that in that audio. I think it's a lot, it's a lot more normal and regular than they want you to think it is the average member. Well, the flip side to that is that the average member has access to the divine just the way the prophets and apostles do. When Elder Cook says, I know his voice and, I've see- and I know his face, what do you think he means by that? What, is the average member's- what does he want the average member to take away from that? I think he wants the average member to take away from the fact that, that he has a direct testimony of Christ. So does that mean he's, if I say I know somebody's face, what does that mean? Okay, I... You see, it gets messy. Well, I, I want to step back and answer your question because I think it's Please. a good question because I've thought about it quite a bit since we discussed it. Is he trying to manipulate people into thinking something that's not true? No. Or, I think he's or has he really seen Jesus face to face? And then we got to jump back into race and priesthood and LGBT and explain why Jesus is silent. No, I think we have to understand what we mean when we talk about what we mean when we say Jesus, we see Jesus face to face. For instance. Okay. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven, whether in or out of the body, I cannot tell, uh, which is kind of an odd sort of thing to say. What does that mean? You don't know if you were in or out of your body? 
Well, you, you sort of match that up with Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon in at the Johnson Farm when they're receiving the vision that is Section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And there were 12 other people in the room, and you have Joseph and Sidney sitting there saying, I see this, and Sidney says, I see the same. And they go through that, and in the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, you have one of the strongest statements by Joseph Smith that he has seen the Savior. He says, after all the testimonies that have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives, for we saw him sitting on the right hand of the Father. Okay, well, uh, was Jesus there at the Johnson Farm? No, at least, uh, I mean, the 12 other people who were in the room didn't see him walk into the room. So when you start talking about, have I seen Jesus? Have I seen him face to face? Uh, you start having to deal with all kinds of assumptions about what that means. Does that mean that Jesus physically came into the room? I think the answer for most people is no. I think that doesn't happen uh, except in extraordinarily rare moments. In fact, you, you, you start to say, okay, the first vision, when Joseph saw the father and the son in the first vision, was he in or out of the body in the way Paul describes? Was this something where they were physically there and he could shake their hands? Or is this something where he was having a vision that... Uh, and so, so you start looking at these kinds of things and you start saying, okay, well, they're giving the impression that they've seen Christ. Well, I, I, I read the, the statement by David O. McKay where he talks about going to the city eternal and he sees and he recognizes the Savior at once. Well, that's he's seeing Christ, but that's something that happened in a dream. And so there, I, I would think critics would say, well, that doesn't count. And then you start having to get into, okay, well, what counts and what doesn't? And so when I hear Elder Cook or I hear any other apostle saying, I, I know his face, I know his voice, I think what they are trying to tell you is that they, are, they know of a surety of Christ's reality, and I think they've had really remarkable spiritual experiences. I think they've probably had dreams or they've probably had visions. I don't think that means that Jesus shows up physically and walks in the door of every Thursday meeting of the apostles. And I, and, and I think that if he doesn't do that, if that's not the way Jesus interacts with us, then I think critics point and say, well, you haven't really seen Jesus. Anybody can have a dream. Anybody, you know, and you look at the Book of Mormon, you look at Lehi. Uh, those were all dreams. Those were all visions. He was a visionary man. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I look at that and I say, I, the way you're, the, the box that you are trying to back me into is this sort of box of, okay, well, if he didn't see Jesus uh, physically face to face the way that I see my children every day when they come home from school, then he isn't seeing Jesus and he's lying to the members of the church and he's trying to deceive the members of the church. And I don't think that at all. And, and, and see, and this, and this is, I, I'm probably pushing back a little too hard here, but this is the frustration I've had since our conversations, in that I think I'm being represented as saying, oh yeah, you're right, the, the apostles don't see Jesus, and I have to concede that. What you just said was another straw man. Now here's why. 
So in these other stories, we know the context of those stories. When Elder Cook stands in front of a crowd and bears this testimony, you and I are having to guess at what the context is because he's being ambiguous. On, and, and again, I'm, it's my gut that tells me I could be wrong. He's being ambiguous on purpose. It's, it's, the use of this, it's using this language in a way that I – like when I speak to an audience and I say something over and over again from place to place that I go, if I have to work with what my audience, their understanding is, and when what I say is meant to be understood differently – than what my audience is interpreting it as, I have a responsibility to clarify and to add context. What I see him doing is being ambiguous on purpose because he knows what his audience thinks and hears when they hear that phrase generally. All we have to do is go out and poll a thousand members and just active members who show up at these things and say like, if you heard an apostle say this, what does that mean to you? Those guys are perfectly happy letting that interpretation sit out there. Now, here's the second point. I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether it's a physical visitation or whether Jesus Christ himself shows up in their dream. Either way, Jesus in their dream or physically in the room seems to be giving revelation on the very minor things, and he still seems to be um, completely absent on the really big mistakes. And so it doesn't matter whether it's physical or not. It's the fact that they want to point to Jesus. Whoever Jesus is, they're testifying that he really is directly involved in some way, whether it's a physical visitation or whether he's showing up in a dream. None of that matters because regardless, he wants the members to uh, be prepared for all this revelation that's coming that's minor stuff. And yet there's no conversation around how Jesus is completely absent in their dreams around these big mistakes that get made. The, the problem still sits there. The problem of trying to reconcile, like, how is Jesus silent while LGBT kids take their lives? And how is Jesus silent for a ton of time while mem- leaders of the church practice racism and bigotry? Uh, on on those of, of uh, African descent, and and yet Jesus seems to be so concerned with three hour church down to two hour church, uh, so that we need to take our vitamins and be ready for these things. The problem still sits there, and so again, it's only this long conversation by me being allowed to push back on you just saying that that allows the average person to listen to this conversation and go like, yeah, that's right. That doesn't doesn't really matter whether it's a physical visitation or a dream. The same problem still sits there. Again, apologists like to be able to throw out an answer, but they don't want their answer questioned in any way. And again, I I don't point to you because, again, you're you're sitting here and we're having it. Um, I I simply want to recognize, like, there is an added complexity, a deeply added complexity to Mormonism when we have a long conversation that allows pushback from both sides. Well, I'm, I'm trying to process that in a way because because part of that I hear as okay, so you you think Elder Cook is standing in front of these people and deliberately trying to deceive them, manipulating them. Yes, absolutely. Okay, and and so as you say that, I, I think you're also saying 
Jim Bennett concedes that that's what Elder Cook is doing. And I do not. I absolutely do not. I do not think Elder Cook is standing in front of a group of people and saying, I know Jesus, I've seen his face. Uh, I think he is stating something uh, that he firmly believes and that, that, I mean, the complexity of understanding the relationship of anybody's connection to Jesus uh, is something that takes, I mean, if I were to sit here and describe to you, because I, I would, and I, and I have, I did this last Sunday, I stood up in testimony meeting, and, and uh, I talked about my testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel. And, and for me to sort of dissect that in terms of a way that somebody who does not have a similar testimony or somebody that does not have any kind of faith in anything beyond this life, for me to, 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 to tailor that testimony in a way that would be relatable or valuable to anybody outside the church would take a great deal of time. And, and you know, so, I mean, I, I look at that, I don't, I don't think that there is any deception in Elder Cook saying that he knows the Savior. I would be willing to say that I know the Savior, and I don't want to get into more details about that. No, that Jesus has never walked in the house, walked in my house. Uh, but uh, you know, when I hear Elder McConkie's testimony that I will not know any better then than I know now, after he dies and he sees him face to face, I would bear that same testimony in the appropriate setting. I mean, I, I look at this and we keep talking about how how complicated and how messy it is. And one of the things that's interesting to me as I do all of this is that I, I, I do not worry that I have damaged the church by, by talking to critics because the, the, the reason people are members of the church uh, are because they have one-on-one -on -one encounters with the Savior and they come to know the Savior and they come to know Jesus and they come to realize that all of the imperfections that are on display, that have been on display throughout the history of the human race. I mean, we talk about, oh, well, geez, why did, why did uh, God allow racists to lead the church at a time when he was allowing slavery to exist on the earth and was allowing segregation and discrimination throughout all of his children, not just members of the church? You know, you recognize the purpose of mortality is to come into a world filled with imperfection and wickedness, and and to learn to to learn and grow, and and do all of those things. And so, so when you do all of that, there, there's so many assumptions in what you're saying. There's so many assumptions as to what you think the church ought to be. That the church ought to ought to. I mean, if Jesus is is directing the church to the degree that I think you think members expect it to be directed, this church would not have any error. Jesus is perfect. And, and the question is, how does Jesus allow imperfection in the church? And the answer is that mortality is an experience with imperfection. Jesus allows it because it's the purpose of why we came here. And we need to grow, and we need to learn, and we need to overcome racism. 
uh, rather than have Jesus step in and say, all right, you're not, you're not perfect enough, this church isn't perfect enough, and I'm going to eliminate all error, and I'm not going to, instead of allowing you to learn from your mistakes and grow up, I'm going to cut to the chase and, and make this church perfect instantly. That's not what the church is for. I mean, so, so I mean, I listen to all of these, and there, there are so many assumptions I think that I missed within the first 13 hours, is that I would, I would hear you say something like that, and me not pushing back on that, I think was interpreted as, oh yeah, I agree, Elder Cook's lying to everybody. Uh, that's not what I was saying, and that's not what I'm willing to agree to. Right, but I've never claimed that. So the places that I've said you've made concessions, I think you've made concessions. Now those may need more context, but I, I do think there were concessions made. Now let me let me say this: whether, and I think this is a great issue to discuss because it keeps pointing to how messy these issues get when two people on opposing sides of of Mormonism are willing to sit down and have the conversation. So let's just assume. Elder Cook deeply believes that he knows the Savior's face and he knows the Savior's voice. Here's the two things. One is that, let's just grant it. I'll grant that for a moment, that he believes that. And let's even assume it's real. We still have to deal with the same problem, which is why God is helping them directly in some way, visionary, dream, whatever it is. He's helping them in some way with small changes and allowing big mistakes to be made, number one. Number two, um, just to point back at like a a little bit of a contradiction to what Cook says. In this was uh, February 9th, two thousand and sixteen. This was at a presentation. Elder Oaks is the featured speaker at a university. Uh, he's asked. Uh, this was a, a gentleman named Andrew asked a question. He says, "Less than a year ago, right here in Washington D.C., my friend killed himself. He was Mormon and gay." Elder Oaks, you've gone on record that the church does not give apologies. Does religious freedom absolve you from responsibility in the gay Mormon suicide crisis? Elder Oaks' answer, I think that's a question that will be answered on Judgment Day. I can't answer that beyond what has already been said. Now here's a special witness of Jesus Christ, who I'm going to assume, like Elder Cook, he knows his voice, he knows his face, why can't Elder Oaks get an answer from Jesus on whether LGBT kids taking their lives is partly on his head? Like, again, it's a double message. And it's nice to keep these compartmentalized off in various places. But when Elder Oaks says, like, I don't know, I, I got to wait till Judgment Day like the rest of you. And then Elder Cook comes out and says, I know his voice and I know his face. There's a contradiction there. And unless we, may, again, make tons of allowances and God, for some reason, doesn't care about the big things, or these guys need to really come to grips with the big things before God will talk, but on the little things, God's there and he's helping. Like, unless we make space for why that somehow adds up in some uh, contortionist way, there's a contradiction, which is Oak says he has no ability to figure out whether the LGBT, uh, LGBT suicides are on his head or not. And on the other hand, Elder Cook wants to intimate that I know his voice, I know his face, and all the small changes in the church are made by revelation. Those two things don't mesh together very well. And so I'm, it, it becomes deeply problematic, again, when the conversation takes place. For people to wrestle with that, it has to be this kind of a conversation. And when they wrestle with that, they're going to have to form new ways of putting this thing together, or they're going to have to deconstruct it 
because it's not going to stay together in the way these guys want it to. The church leaders, they would love for these two things to stay compartmentalized off in their own arena. But that's not how this works. These, all, these things all have impact on each other. So my question to you would be like, why can't Elder Oaks just ask Jesus if these suicides are a good thing or a bad thing? Why can't he get an answer on that? But they can get answers on whether church should be from three hours to two hours. Well, first of all, the idea that Elder Oaks thinks that suicides are a good thing, I think, is a ridiculous conclusion. I did, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where did well, I say it's a good well, thing? I just said, said it's on his Elder head. Oaks that's, a straw, whoa, that's a straw man, though. Hold on a minute. Just ask me, can that, why can't Elder Oaks ask Jesus if his suicides are a good thing or a bad thing? All right, so let me, let me rephrase it then, because obviously I'm being, I'm being a little facetious, which is, why can't Elder Oaks ask God and have Jesus show up in the same way that Elder Cook is implying? Why can't Jesus show up? And let Elder Oaks know if he has any responsibility or not for LGBT kids taking their lives. Well, two things. One, um, you're presuming that Elder Cook's experience involves Jesus telling him anything rather than Jesus saying, I live, you know, I'm here, uh, this all has a purpose. And now you're on your own. Well, that's what mortality is. I know, but the moment we say that, that conclusion also has lots of repercussions. No, it's not that you're. It's it's, it's not that you're completely on your own, and I'm abandoning you. No, no, no. It's, that you're on your that, own to make all the decisions for the church been, without my direct assistance. No, no. That. Do you see? Like every time we hold a piece of ground. That piece of ground has a ton of repercussions, and I don't want to let us shift from just holding different pieces of ground depending on the argument. Well, I, I think you're assigning me to different ground than ground that I'm saying I'm holding. All right, tell me the ground you hold. How direct, for all this to work in your head, how direct is Jesus' interaction with the leaders of the church? I you see, the moment you answer that, it's going to put you into a corner, and that corner is going to have repercussions where in some places it's not going to work. Okay, what corner are you trying to back me into? No, it, it's not a corner. It's it's a matter Just of the minute I, answer, I know you're putting. I know, but he, but here's why: because you're trying to point it like I'm trying to put you into a corner. What I'm saying is, whatever ground you pick, when I ask you how direct for your for your perspective of Mormonism to work, how how direct is Jesus's interaction with the leaders, and whatever choice you make on that ground, there are issues and historical data points in this church that are going to be deeply problematic to that ground. And you're going to have to move again from that piece of ground to another as we have this conversation, because the church doesn't hold up if we only hold one piece of ground that makes it work at one moment, because it's going to have to be a completely different piece of ground at a different moment. Let me give you another example. In our, in our interview, one of the things that you said, Jim, and I thought it was gorgeous, by the way, it's one of the things I had to spend a lot of time thinking about. It's the thing I mentioned earlier that I wanted to make sure I got to, which was that when we talked about race and priesthood, you said that Jesus isn't going to allow these guys to get a partial revelation, essentially. They're, they're not going to be allowed to still hold on to their bigotry uh, and then and, and get a revelation that allows them to still like, okay, we'll, we'll partially allow those of color to participate, but we're still going to do it in a way that allows us to be bigots. I thought that was gorgeous. But as you probably can guess... That perspective also has a thousand other data points that work against it because the church has made partial changes. For instance, changing the temple to, to remove unhealthiness. That has been a slow process 
that has taken little pieces out here and there of patriarchy and sexism and of things that were deeply unhealthy um, over time. And so, yes, we can show demonstrably that Jesus, if the church is led by Jesus in these changes, that these changes often do come slow and allow the church leaders to hold on to unhealthy aspects as they do them. So again, whatever piece of ground we take, it has consequences for any other conversation we go into. And it's one of the things that apologists do that absolutely frustrates me, is that whatever question we're being asked, we offer a different kind of reconciliation for that answer. And then we get to the next question, which now counters that reconciliation. And now we just choose a different piece of ground. And now we keep these issues so compartmentalized that we never have to allow those contradictions to sit on the table at the same time. And so again, I'm going to go back to you. Um, what kind of interaction does Jesus have with the leaders of his church so that all of this works out? And then I'll ask the follow-up question and we'll see if we still hold that ground. So that all of this works out. I mean, I mean, because that becomes, because whatever answer I give is an answer where you're saying, okay. You see, it's, it's just messy. But no, no, I want, I want to back up and take, take a larger view of it. Because I, I, think, I think you are trying to sort of, I think you are trying to back me into a corner to some degree. I think it's I, natural. I think Mormonism is so contradictory that we have no choice but to be backed up into corners. No, well. Mormonism any, imposes that it contradicts itself, so we're going to be backed up into a no, corner no, no matter what. I, I, I don't accept that. I mean, I, I, I great. Then I, let's then then what kind of interaction does Jesus have with his uh, leaders I, that allows us to reconcile all of this messiness? All right, I want to back up because I because I I, I think you made a. You're reciting a lot of assumptions to me that I don't necessarily accept. So I want to back up and give you my perspective on this and see how, how any of that might overlap with what you've just said. Because I look at the mortal experience as a whole, in total. The idea is uh, Latter-day Saint theology is based on the idea that we are co-eternal with God, that we existed before we came to this earth, and that this earth is a is an experience where when prior to coming to this earth we were lived in direct connection where we were in the presence of God at all times uh, we could talk to him we could be with him there was no doubt of his existence there was no doubt of what he wanted there was no doubt as to what his purpose was and there was really no way that uh, that we could get that wrong, that we could do something wrong without recognizing it was wrong and without recognizing what the mistake was. And uh, the idea in, in our theology is that mortality was designed as an experience where we would deliberately choose to enter into a world where we would not have we would not be able to see God whenever we wanted to, where we would have to struggle and walk by faith and and make a great deal of mistakes and do all of those kinds of things because that was required for us to be able to grow, that we would not be able to grow spiritually unless we had the opportunity to make mistakes without uh, having the cheat sheet in front of us the entire time, which is the way it was prior to coming to this earth. Uh, 
So I look at that and say, okay, we've come to this earth, and we have come to this earth largely for the purpose of making mistakes. That the reason we are here is that we are going to make mistakes, and we are going to learn, and we are going to grow as a result of them. And and that that's not a flaw in the experience, that's the purpose of the experience. And it's also the reason why we need a savior, because we're going to have to have somebody to clean up after us as we do all this damage by all of the mistakes we're going to make and all the ways we're going to learn and grow by doing that. Okay, so the church is created as a vehicle in which we can strengthen each other and in which we can have access to the teachings and to the ordinances that will point us in the direction of where we need to go. But the church is established in such a way that it still requires faith on our part to be able to understand how to do that. And we, as members of the church, and since we are the church as its members, the church as a whole is going to continue to make mistakes and is going to make big mistakes individually and collectively. Uh, that's part of the experience. That's that's not a design flaw. It's a design feature. So, okay. So you start saying, all right, with that context, and you start saying, okay, well, how does the Lord give Russell M. Nelson instruction about two-hour church, but he allowed uh, racism to endure in the church for over a century? And you look at that, and you say, look at who he was dealing with. Look at the world in which those people were living. And, and the, the, the constant in all of this is that the Lord gives us answers based on the questions we are willing to ask. The Lord, you know, I, I keep coming back to the word of wisdom being, Emma saying, I hate all these tobacco stains on the wooden floors of the school of the prophets. And so Joseph Smith goes and asks a question and he gets an answer. Invariably, revelation comes when we ask questions and get answers. And during most of the time of the priesthood ban, specifically, that question wasn't even asked. And I don't even think the Lord expected that question to be asked because the world at large was enslaving black people for a good chunk of this time. Surely, uh, though, that question was asked from 1960 until 1978. Okay, from 1960 to 1978, you have... Um, David O. McKay, uh, who is a segregationist, asking the question, and then that comes into the idea that you're talking about, about there, he's not going to give an answer to that. When, when he's not asking, what he was asking was, how can we increase participation with black people but make sure that they never marry white people? I mean, I mean, that's the assumption behind the question. Okay, so so you take that and you say, okay, well, that doesn't work in the temple because there's still sexism in the temple. And there's still all these kinds of things in the temple. And you, and with the LGBT issue, how come he's not coming down and screaming at people? Right. How does he help them understand it's not a choice anymore and yet we still have an untenable position? Again, partial changes seem to happen all the time. But I like well, your answer. Well, but, but see, but the thing is, with regard to the priesthood revelation, uh, I mean, the, the, the sweeping revelation came after partial changes had been made in the minds and hearts of the leaders of the church and the membership of the church. 
I mean, it wasn't until 1960, roughly. I mean, I can't put a date on it. But it wasn't until then where anybody was even thinking of making partial changes. Joseph F. Smith in 1912 wasn't worried at all about the quote-unquote Negro question. Didn't make any difference to him. Uh, at the time, everybody recognized that these were people who who were not equal with whites because that's just what everybody knows and what everybody believes. I, I mean, so, so by 1960, the hearts are starting to be prepared. And I look at the LGBT issue, and I think the hearts are starting to be prepared. I, I, I mean, we have come so far from Spencer W. Kimball's miracle of forgiveness about pounding your head against the door until you're bleeding uh, that uh, I am encouraged that we still have farther to go. Now, the fact that Dallin Oaks may not believe that we have farther to go or any of that, you're dealing with people who uh, are living in a, a world that is designed to be imperfect. And and so when, I, so I see the Lord's hand in this church uh, even before the priesthood revelation. I see the Lord's hand in making David O. McKay, David O. McKay is unsettled by this, and he doesn't get to where I think eventually the church needs to go. But the, the Lord's hand, uh, the, the way you keep describing this, the assumption you're making is that the Lord needs to just sort of step in and the literary device is deus ex machina, machine of the gods. He just needs to step in and correct all error immediately and quickly. And that has never been the way the Lord has dealt with his people, not just in the modern church, but in the ancient church. I mean, the example I used in our conversation that I compared the uh, the race and the priesthood issue to was the idea of a king in ancient Israel. The Lord made it very clear early in Israel's history that a king, it was a terrible idea and would lead to a great deal of bloodshed. And Israel said, okay, we want one anyway. And rather than just sort of step in and, and kill everybody or wipe out Israel and start with new people, he said, okay, this is where you are. All right, let's, I'll, I'll help you pick a king, even though I've already told you that, that a king is a bad idea. Uh, this is the way the Lord has always dealt with his people. He has always dealt with us where we are, not where we need to be or where we will eventually get. But the idea that you point at somebody and say, well, how come Jesus hasn't fixed you and and changed your mistakes so that you get to where we need to get uh, is, to, is to fly in the face, I think, of how God has always dealt with his children. So I... I mean, I, I, so I look at that, and as, as you try to sort of back me into a corner and say, well, how come he didn't step in here, and how come he didn't step in here, I take a longer view and say that God has sent us to earth for the purpose of making mistakes, and we need not be surprised that those mistakes are not rectified on our time frame. Yeah, but okay, so... The next logical question then is what you've set up is a paradigm where you say, look, these 15 men in a room are the way God works is that these men are often going to be, and let's, let me even phrase it because I know where you're going to push back, that these men on specific issues 
because of the way this system operates, these men are going to be later at arriving at the healthier decision and saving people's lives and marginalizing and shaming other people. They're going to be later than the 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 voices of those maybe on the margins of the faith or those who are... Um, th- I'm trying to think of the right word to, to characterize these people because it's me, right? Like I'm excommunicated um, as a member of the church and... I came to a decision years ago, as I looked at the science, as I looked at uh, just the human experience, I came to a decision really quickly, once I was confronted with it, that being homosexual is just to be human. It's just like being left-handed. And yet these 15 men who are special witnesses of Jesus Christ, whatever the mechanisms are that operate in that system, it actually inhibits them from coming to the decision as quick as, say, I did. That there is something in that system that slows them down to where it actually happens later than it does for other people. Um, and that becomes deeply problematic. So Elder Oaks, uh, was. It, this is actually still on the Mormon newsroom, which I cannot, for the life of me, understand why the church has not removed this and at least disavowed it by removing it. And, and personally, no, I think... No, if they removed it, you, you'd say they're hiding it. No, 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 I'm not saying they're hiding it. So I, I, do you know what I'm talking no, about, by the way? Move, that's what you... Pro- that, that's likely what, uh, maybe not you, but most critics would say they're hiding it. Um, what are, okay, let me clarify. What are you saying I'm, that I would say they're hiding? Well, Elder Oaks' statement about Judgment Day. Um, no, no, no. So that's the statement about judgment is not on the church's website. Okay, um, what's on the church's that's website? That's somewhere else. This is a different thing. So this is on Mormon Newsroom. Elder Oaks is uh, asked a question. At what point does showing that love, talking about love towards our LGBT brothers and sisters, at what point does showing that love cross the line into advertently endorsing behavior? If the son says, well, if you love me, can I bring my partner to our home to visit? Can we come for the holidays? How do you balance that against, for example, concern for other children in the home? Elder Oaks, this is his answer. That's a decision that needs to be made individually by the person responsible. So he does he does shift and allow the person to make their own decision, but now he puts some pressure on them. Listen to this. Calling upon the Lord for inspiration. I can imagine that in most circumstances, the parents would say, please don't put that. I'm sorry, please don't do that. Don't put us into that position. Surely, if there are children in the home who would be influenced by this example, talking about a homosexual, his homosexual child and, and his homosexual child's partner, um, the answer would likely be that. There would also be other factors that would make that the likely answer. I can also imagine some circumstances in which it might be possible to say, yes, come, but don't expect to stay overnight. Don't expect to be a lengthy house guest. Don't expect us to take you out and introduce you to our friends or to deal with you in a public situation that would imply our approval of your partnership. Now, you and I both know, like, again, set all of this debate aside or all this conversation aside, you and I both know that that's homophobic and it's hate speech. And, and I assume you would not disagree. I, I, I feel anything I say on that, though, you're going to take as a concession. No, no, I'm just asking and, you right, to, be, I, 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 to, to be what you've already been so far, which is to acknowledge that... These men hold bigot, bigotry um, characteristics within them, 
and that in this particular situation is expressing itself. Well, I don't want anything I say to be interpreted as judging Elder Oaks's heart. I I think that pre, I no I think that President Oaks he's not President Oaks he's not Elder Oaks he was Elder Oaks when he made that statement. Uh, I think that President Oaks uh, firmly believes that he is doing the right thing. I do not think President Oaks is is motivated by hatred for LGBT people. I think President Oaks believes that uh, his understanding of theology requires him to take a hardline stance against homosexuality. Yeah, this is beyond that, though. This is this is my child and my child's partner before marriage is legal in well, Utah. So it's not. It's not like we can deflect and say they're not married, they're breaking the law of chastity, like you and I both get. I, well, no, I, I, I have clearly stated that, that, I, that I do not agree with that. I, I, I have stated that. Where, where I, don't want to, I don't want that disagreement to be taken as, uh, yes, I concede to you, Bill Real, that Elder Oaks is a terrible person. Or that Elder Oaks. No, is yeah, hateful. I'm not saying that. What I'm asking you to do no, is. No, you're saying this is hate speech. Yeah, you're saying it is, is though. But so say it. So tell me it isn't then. See, the, that's the point. It, we don't in Mormonism. We have to couch our words so damn carefully, Jim, that we can't ever say what we not, think. This has nothing to do with Mormonism. This has to do with judging the motives of another human being. All right. If I because, were outside because of this. anybody, when anybody uh, brings any of these issues, and it's like. Well, tell me why the, the, this isn't why he's saying this. I'm not in a position. I, all I can tell you is I disagree with it. Okay, so you I, disagree I, with the position that to not take your homosexual child out to meet your friends simply because they're homosexual is wrong. I disagree. Yeah, yeah you disagree. It, Thank you. I disagree. And I'll, and I'll let that stand because I think the audience, I mean, we all get what that means. That's it, It's not a matter but, of condemning. See, that's the thing. We all get that, what, what that means. I don't think we all get that, what that means well, because, I, I, because, because as, as you say this, you, 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 begin, you set up this, this quote with, uh, all right, well, we, you have to concede, for instance, that there's something in the church that uh, means that that the apostles and prophets arrive at the right conclusion later than everybody else, that that's sort of a, a core thing in the church. I mean, that, that, that's the message I got from you. I picked a few particular issues. Remember, I stopped myself and said, I know what your argument back is going to be. In, in the larger context, this church gets so much more right than it gets wrong and that gets lost when you start to focus on all of these things. This is the thing that, that, that frustrates me after all of this is that, is that if I concede to you any error anywhere, uh, it becomes, all right, it's the error that is the, um, that is the standard, not all the non-error. And, and you know, one, of, one of the things that happened since our, our last conversation uh, my uncle Wally passed away. Wally Bennett is his name. He was 95 years old. He was a World War II veteran and a Korean War veteran. It's really cool. They draped a flag over his coffin and played taps as they were lowering him to the grave. But I went to his funeral, which was one of the most lovely and spiritual funerals that allowed me to realize the context of, of all of our lives, a funeral it's a wonderful place to consider mortality and realize 
okay, this this is what the church is about. The church is about putting life in an eternal context. And the church gets that so much righter than the world does that it doesn't even bear repeating. And I looked at that, and one of my cousins stood up, all five of my cousins who were the sons and daughters of this uh, of, the, of Wally Bennett, they all spoke, even though two of them are no longer active in the church. I'm not sure if they're even still members, but but uh, uh, one of my cousins, and he is a, active in the church, uh, my Uncle Wally was the president of Bennett Glass and Paint, which was a pioneer-era business. It was founded by my great-grandfather, and he passed it down to his oldest son, my grandfather. And my grandfather passed it down to his oldest son, who was my Uncle Wally. Uh, Bennett Glass and Paint doesn't exist anymore. It went bankrupt in the, in the mid-'80s after they fired my uncle. And the... Um, they brought in this hotshot consultant who ended up running it into the ground, and it no longer exists. And and my cousin got up at the funeral, and he started telling the story of when when my uncle Wally was fired. And my cousin at the time was getting an MBA at BYU, and his BYU professor was really interested in what was happening at Bennett's. And he said, you know, I know this consultant, and I have some dirt on him. And we can get him. And you need to go back and tell your uncle that I can help you get him, that we can take this guy down. And my cousin went back and talked to his father. And my uncle Wally at the time said, well, uh, I have two choices here. I can seek revenge and I can spend my entire life fighting against this and or I can forgive and I can live the gospel of Jesus Christ that I have taught you all my life. And I choose to do the latter. And, and the point was, my, my uncle says, this is, my cousin said, the church, this is the kind of man that the church produces uh, in my uncle Wally. And, and I, I felt that so strongly at that funeral and, and as you sit there and say, okay, well, look at the things that they're getting wrong. And I say, look at the overwhelming good and the number of, of souls that have been saved by all of the things that they get right. There is no doubt in my mind that God's hand is in this church and that God is able to lead this church despite the errors of its imperfect leaders and its imperfect members. So I, I, it just frustrates me to no end when, when acknowledging that there are things that I disagree with or acknowledging that there are mistakes is sort of conflated into acknowledging that the church is bad or that the church is behind on, on everything. The church is ahead with regard to what it takes to save a soul. And the fact that there are, there are still things that we need to do to make sure we get there perfectly does not detract from the fact that overall this church is an overwhelming force for good. Yeah, I think that, again, we're in the space of subjectiveness. I think the church has both good fruits and bad fruits. I think some of those good fruits are produced in other systems. I think some of those bad fruits are produced in other systems. I don't think there'd be any way to quantify or qualify that. Um, we could argue that the church has saving ordinances 
But again, that's also subjective. If the church is not what it claims to be, then none of that is real anyway in terms of these ordinances. And so we're left... Well, well, hold, well, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're, left, we're left to qualify or quantify whether the church produces good people or whether it produces bad people, whether it has safe spaces for people to positively grow or whether it has safe spaces for people to get hurt and be abused and be traumatized. And I think it's a completely mixed bag. And, and two, I would challenge anybody listening and I'll challenge you too, Jim, I would challenge you to write down the number of positive changes the church made before the world collectively was calling for it and raising a voice to it. And I actually think those would be few in number. I do think you've got the immigration one we talked about last time, but I think those would be few in number. Um, if I were to name the things that they were late, and again, we've already established, you don't think that it's important for these guys to be ahead of the times. That's not a, a, a characteristic of a prophet, seer, and revelator. But now you're, you're trying to take that argument that these guys have created way more good. And so I'm saying if we tried to qualify it, tried to quantify it, and we made a list of all the things that they gave us before the world did, if we were to try and make that kind of a list, uh, I, I just don't see these guys as having a significant number of things ahead of the time. Even the Word of Wisdom one, for instance. There are conversations going on in Joseph Smith's milieu about the very substances that he prohibits in the Word of Wisdom. Um, I just don't think it's as clear cut as saying like, hey, this thing is good. It's done way more good than anything. It's such a great force for good in the world. I think that's messy. And I think there is uh, spaces unique to Mormonism where trauma and abuse happen, where the church is reluctant to make healthy shifts on. I think there are things the church does well, but those things are also found inside other systems. Uh, not all systems, but again, it's, it's a mixed bag. And so it's a hard thing to, to have a conversation around because you're going to impose something and I'm going to say like, yeah, it's not that easy to impose and now we're stuck on this subjective ground. The church is designed to be completely on subjective ground. That's the point. There is no objective way to, to quantitatively measure the church's truthfulness in the way that you're you're describing. I mean, I mean, I, I can point to you to the good that it's done. I can give you my subjective experience and what I consider to be uh, powerful uh, connection to the divine, and those can be dismissed by anybody. Any outsider could look at those and say, "Well, that's confirmation. That's confirmation bias. That's this, that, the other." And that's by design. That's what the only way to know that the church is what it claims to be is to get that message directly from whose church it is. And there's no other way to do that in a way that will satisfy the rest of the world. And as you continually talk about how the church is behind and the world is ahead, it sounds to me like you're, you're, you're talking about the church as a sort of political organization that on political issues, I mean, you, you grant to me that the church is ahead, quote-unquote, on immigration, uh, then... Uh, I, I will say the leaders of the church were, were ahead of the general membership on that issue. Outside, well, that's a political issue. I mean, I know, but, it, but, it, but you're saying political, and I, I, don't, I wouldn't call it that. Here's what I would call it. And issues where human beings, we're deciding how to treat human beings. So the LGBT issue, 
affects the emotional and well-being and the health of human beings. The race and priesthood issue affects the well-being and the health of human beings. How we stand on birth control affects the well-being and the health of human beings. Where we stood on ERA affects the health and well-being of human beings. Um, When it comes to issues of interviews behind closed doors with leaders, um, again, whether we cause harm or emotional well-being to a human being, the church on those kinds of issues seems those 15 men, whatever the mechanism is to get those 15 men united, seems to put those men at a later state than when the world collectively or the church even from its, its voices at the, on the margins that the church claims are the uh, apostate voices. It's those voices who are reaching out and saying like, something's unhealthy here. We're, we're asking you to examine this issue. We're asking you to see if you can treat people better. And then the church responds significantly late on issues that have to do with how we treat each other. Um, and, I, and I think if we made a list in two columns, when the church makes a healthy change of how we treat each other before the world moves there or before the apostate voices are calling for it, and when the church makes a change after the world moves there or after the apostate voices are calling for it, I'm just about certain that we would outnumber the right column four to one versus the left column. <sighs> These guys seem to be slow at coming to no, grips. I, I, under, I understand what you are saying. I, yeah. I do not accept the premise that, that you're offering. Then let's make two columns no, and let's no, name them. Because, because I don't think that's what the church is designed to do. I don't think the church... Do you see, though, you're trying to have it both ways, though, Jim. You're saying on one hand, this is not what it's designed to do. And on the other hand, we shouldn't gauge the church on that because the church does so much good. But I'm saying, like, when we quantify it, it becomes problematic. Here's another thing. Elder uh, Elder Corbridge recently gives a talk, and you talk about that in the first uh, in the first episode. And you didn't like the talk either. I didn't. There's this idea that there is an analytical method, there's an academic method, there's a scientific method. Those three methods, if we use those three methods, the church doesn't fare well on its claims. The, the, the evidence leads to the church being contradictory. It's only when we allow, in other words, Elder Corbridge is right. It's only when we allow the divine method to trump those other three that the church has a tenable position. Now, in terms of deciding facts from untrue things, those three methods, while not perfect, do way better at getting us to the truth than the divine method. If I take the divine method and I take 100 members of the church and I ask them a question at which none of them know the answer and I give them multiple choice of five answers and say, go pray about it, the, the reality is they're coming to the, what the truth of that answer is, is not going to be very effective using the divine method. The other three methods are much better at us arriving at the truth. Even when leaders of the church use the divine method, it provides tons of errors. It provides tons of prophets contradicting each other. It's, so those three methods are actually better, but the only tenable position the church has is if it allows the divine method to trump the other three because the divine method is the only one we can manipulate to have someone still believe. And here, let me add another thing to it too. Um, which is that all roads lead to belief in the church. 
Jim, you have a spiritual experience that says the church is true. Hence, the church is true. If I have a spiritual experience the church is not true, I've been deceived by Satan. If you don't get an answer the church is true, that's okay. DNC 46 says, for some it is given to know that Jesus is the Christ, and for others to believe on their words. So just believe on their words because the church is true. Well, what if you don't want to believe on their words? Well, it doesn't matter. You've been deceived again. The church is true. It, every single possible way in which the church can be examined for being true or not, no matter what answer you get, the church is true. And for those who arrive at any other kind of answer, they're wrong. The, the church, let me ask you, here's another way to put it. If I went up to Elder Holland and I said, Elder Holland, the church may be true and it may not. I would like you to provide me with a formula by which it is actually possible for me to arrive at an answer the church is not true. Not that it isn't, only that the, that the test, the formula is fair enough that a answer that it's not true could actually show up. And there is no formula. All roads lead to the church being true. It's only when we have these conversations, Jim, and say like, look, we're going to have to hold to the data. And when we use those first three methods, the analytical, the academic, and the scientific method, the church doesn't fare well. And even when we use the divine method, the only acceptable answer is that the church is true. This becomes complicated. And the only way an average member can start to go like, wow, the only, I can see where this gets messy. I can see why this only works that way. I can see why this is a contradiction is again, by having this kind of a long form conversation. And again, I'm pointing out the apologists don't want to do that. Well, I can think of a number of reasons why faithful members wouldn't want to do this. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure if you would really enjoy 12 hours with Daniel Peterson grilling you about the Book of Mormon. I would welcome Daniel Peterson grilling me about the Book of Mormon. Daniel Peterson's been asked by me to come on the podcast. He refuses. Well, uh, Daniel Peterson's been asked by you to come on your podcast. I'm saying if you were to go sit at Fair Mormon and Daniel... I'll do it. I'm happy to. Let's set it up. Let's Daniel Peterson, if you're listening to this, I'd love to. I I can't set anything up with Daniel Peterson. no, no, I'm not asking you to. I'm asking if Daniel's listening, Stephen Smoot's listening, Steve Densley's listening, John Lynch is listening. I'll sit down with any of them and have a 12-hour conversation in the same format that you and I did where we gave each other time to talk and we allowed each other to push back where we disagreed. Nobody wants to do that because it doesn't go well for the church. If we're going to be loyal to the church and we want the church to look good and we want people to believe, these kinds of conversations are not conducive to that. Like, I think, again, I think you would agree And we can cover, I'm happy to spend six hours on the most faithful issues and again, give another six hours to the deep, the most problematic ones. I still think at the end of that, the average member goes like, whoa, this gets messy and this isn't the way I thought it was. The average member is listening to these. I know. Because because the assumption that you're making, when you keep talking about the divine method versus the scientific method, uh, I I think there is a, a fundamental error in what that means. Uh, The church has never said, for instance, that if you want to learn the periodic table, uh, go and pray about it until you you get God to tell you what the answers are on your chemistry quiz. Uh, That is not how the quote-unquote divine method works. The promise in, in the Book of Moroni is that by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. And people misinterpret that to mean it's saying that you may know all truth. And that's not what it's saying. 
It's, it's saying that the Holy Ghost confirms truth, that you may know something is true or something is not true by the power of the Holy Ghost. It does not mean that if you do not have knowledge, if you do not study something, if you do not know something, that all you have to do is pray about it, and then you, you get that answer. And that's even true with regard to the truth claims of the church. If you uh, the, the Moroni's promise talks about how essential it is that you consider everything that has, the Lord has done from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that you shall receive these things. In other words, you have to do some homework. You have to look at this, and then you have to take it to the Lord and say, is this true? And that is a very different thing from, okay, I'm going to go study something. I'm going to go acquire a piece of information in an academic setting. Uh, because the, the, the whole purpose of the church, the whole purpose of doing that is to be able to have the assurance from the Lord that what you have studied, that what you are learning, uh, to have the Holy Ghost be able to give you the confidence to know what is true and what is not. And so as you, as you say this and say, okay, well, there's no possible way that 12 hours of, of, you know, debate over the truth claims of the church is going to persuade people to join the church is to me, I listen to that and say, that's like saying there's no way a Bible bash is going to convert somebody to the church. And I, as a, as a Bible basher on my mission, I, I remember I was in Dundee, Scotland, and I was walking uh, downtown, and there was this big street meeting of these evangelical Christians, and my companion and I were the only ones that stopped to listen. And after about 10 minutes, I was surrounded in a circle by evangelical Christians who were lobbing scriptures at me, and I was lobbing scriptures back, and I just getting angrier and angrier, although I was just really proud of myself for being so stinking smart, well, it shouldn't surprise anybody that nobody changed their mind. That, that, that the only way that you can get any knowledge of God is if God himself gives it to you. And so, so as you talk about all of these things and say, well, okay, well, geez, none of these debates are going to lead people into the church, and it really... These long-form discussions, they're just not helpful. Uh, I look at that and say, thats that certainly has not been my purpose in engaging in these long-form discussions. It has not been my purpose to convince you or anybody else that the church is true. My purpose is to demonstrate that I don't think members of the church need be afraid of, of confronting critics, of talking to critics, of talking to people who disagree. And as you say, okay, well, there are other churches, these things happen in other systems. I, I do not feel any responsibility. One, one of the things that was odd to me in, in the, the list of things that you said I gave up uh, was you said, well, geez, looking at it from the outside, uh, Mormon priesthood has no more power to heal than other churches. And my reaction to that is I do not see it as my responsibility Oh, I, I do not see the legitimacy of my connection to the divine or any kind of miracle done within the boundaries of this church as being defined by tearing down uh, somebody else. I mean, if somebody else believes that they've had a miracle, uh, I don't think it makes my miracle more legitimate if I somehow tear down their miracle. 
so I, I, I just think I, I look at this and I think we are talking about two really fundamentally different things. And, and I think that as you, as you focus solely on areas where you think the church has done terrible things, uh, I, I think you, you are missing the point, the point and the purpose of what the church is and, and what the church is designed to do. And I think it, it, it's a, it's an attempt to some degree to say, okay, prove to me that the church is true, but you're not allowed to have God do it. You're not allowed to have any kind of subjective relationship with God be entered into evidence. And the, the, the Lord has designed this system. He has designed mortality to make it so that that's not the way it's going to work. It's never going to work that way. So by what source... So George Albert Smith was certain that the disavowed theories that he taught as true doctrines, that those were true. Brigham Young said that it was by spiritual means that he knew the Adam-God doctrine. It was, Elder Oaks seems to have some type of certainty as he stands up in general conference and imposes the family proclamation in ways that deeply damages the LGBT community. By what source? So if, if the divine method is trustworthy... How How is that working in those kinds of situations? And in other words, if I use the divine method and it is completely hit or miss that I have prophet seers and revelators who think they're using the divine method and they are arriving at answers at which later leaders will disavow, then how trustworthy is the divine method when we use it that way? Like you're saying like we can't use it to know calculus unless we already know the calculus. And I'm suggesting that we have LDS prophets, seers, and revelators who, through their words, intimate that they have access to the divine method, and yet later prophets have disavowed, or you and I have agreed that they're wrong currently. How does the divine method work, then, as a reliable mode of knowing truth, if LDS prophets, seers, and revelators seem to know by the divine method things are true, only to be later disavowed and wrong? The article of faith says we believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and that he will yet reveal many great and, I don't know, what's the adjective? Great I don't know if it's wonderful, I don't, I don't know what it is, but uh, sure. Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, this is not about the unreliability of the divine method. It's about the imperfect people who are not who are not questioning a number of their assumptions. Uh, I, 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 for How do we know at any given time whether we're questioning our assumptions or not? In other words, whether you're right about what you just said, the problem is still the same, which is that it is hit or miss when we think we're using no, the divine I, method to arrive at yes. truth, and if we are. I, I don't think it's hit or miss. I think we get answers to, to questions that we ask. Joseph F. Smith did not ask whether or not it was appropriate to deny the priesthood to blacks. It just he, he held on to that assumption that was reinforced by everything around him, and it never, I don't think, even occurred to him to think of the world in different terms. And what, about, what about Brigham Young and Adam-God doctrine? Oh, Adam-God is an interesting one in that um, I, I, did we talk about Adam-God? 
I, I don't know that we spent a lot of time on. I think we briefly mentioned it, but um, I don't, and again, I don't want to get into whether it was doctrine or accepted by the church. No, I'm simply well, no. saying Brigham Young's own mind. Well, the thing about Adam God that, that's interesting to me is that is that there were there has was never really any any major need to sort of pry it out of the theology of the church. I mean, there were later denunciations um, by Spencer Kimball and Bruce R. McConkie like a century after it was taught. But, but you look at the theology of the church, and whatever it was that he was teaching was not being interpreted by the people at a time in, in a way that is radically different from the way that we understand the theology now, which leads me to believe that Adam God, that we're, we're sort of looking at that now sort of with a presentist mindset that we don't really understand how that was received at the time it was being taught, because I think the way it was received was not inconsistent with the way we're practicing it now. It's very clear that what Brigham Young taught about the curse of Cain, it required a major crowbar to sort of pry that out of the theology at a much later date. Adam God just seems to have come and gone in a way that barely made a ripple in how it actually affected people and, and their understanding of God. How about President Nelson's claiming that the November 2015 policy was revelation? Uh, I, I, again, I, I mean, you're, you're, I've made it very clear that I'm not comfortable with that. And that's, yeah. that's been a but, it, but he called it revelation. So did the divine method not work there? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I can't, I can't judge President Nelson's heart. I, 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 I don't know what's going on. I, I can't say, oh, geez, you're really not doing this. I, all I can say is, in my connection to the divine, as I have prayed about that, I have not received any answer other than be patient with President Nelson and be patient with these leaders. Yeah, but, and, they, but he claimed it was a revelation. I understand he claimed it was a revelation. And, and, and the, 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 the assumption here that I'm saying, you're saying, okay, this divine thing, this, this, all this divine nonsense, it just doesn't work because it's hit or miss. Because if anybody believes something that isn't true, that clearly the divine message, the method has failed them. History shows it's the least effective way across no, but, religions, but, across... But that's not what the divine method is. That's what I keep trying to say, is that, is that it, you wouldn't say, for instance, that if I go into a calculus test and get an F, that the divine, divine method had failed me. Because you wouldn't assume that the, nobody would assume that praying about calculus that you haven't actually learned is an appropriate way to get knowledge. Sure, but I'm talking about the November 2015 policy, which makes doctrinal adjustments and policy adjustments. Elder Nelson claims it's revelation, and it and it seems to contradict our theology at every single twist and turn. I again, you're asking me to pass judgment on Elder Nelson. Well, you're asking me to say if Elder Nelson has made a mistake, uh, President Nelson has made a mistake here, that that invalidates the possibility of any kind of connection to the divine. No, not that just Elder Nelson. We're talking about the top 15 men of the church. 
President Monson was the prophet at the time. I, I, Nelson is just in the quorum of the, of the Twelve, and he's couching his revelation. Nobody else is coming out and saying it isn't. Um, so we're left, we're left with that just hanging out there. Uh, it seems, again, if we were to debate the effectiveness, what we would have to keep saying is like, I don't know, I don't, can't judge people's hearts. But, the, no. but, the, but again, to the logical and reasonable mind, the divine method seems pretty ineffective at arriving at the correct answer. Well, <sighs> unless we allow the divine method to always trump the others. And then we can always show examples where those other methods arrived at truth. And so- they're two different things. They're, they're different things. When, 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 when Oliver was trying to translate, the revelation came and said, you took no thought save it were to ask me, that that's not appropriate, that that's not how God deals with his children, that that's not how knowledge is imparted. We have to make the effort. We have to do everything we can uh, on our own. And then we take it to the Lord and ask whether or not something is true. And when we do that, uh, I think the divine method, as you describe it, is extraordinarily reliable. That does not mean that people are not capable of continuing in error and continuing to make mistakes. It does not mean – and again – Give me an example. Give me a question at which the divine method uh, works effectively – that I could not raise that other religious systems or people praying about Mormonism get a different answer. Like, give me a question where you think the divine method holds up and there is not contradictory evidence that it doesn't. I don't accept the premise of the question. I, I know, because the, that, because the premise of the question doesn't isn't helpful to the conclusion. No, no, I don't accept the premise of the question because you're saying, give me an example of the way I hear the question is, give me an example of, of the divine method in a way that can't be questioned objectively. And the, the reality is the divine method is designed to be such that, that an objective believer can dismiss it. Right. The Lord designed it so that it is not possible I mean, you're or saying, the system designed it. You're, you're essentially asking me to prove that the church is true. No, 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 no. I'm, you're telling me the divine method is effective, and I'm saying give me one question that I could get a hundred people to go to God in sincerity and ask, and we would see that that method works. You see, that doesn't work. I, I understand what you're saying. It absolutely does work. And, okay, one question is, are you there? Yeah, but I can use and the other three and arrive at that too. That again, I'm asking th- for a question where the divine method trumps the other three. There's no possible way. That, what what other three? The analytical, the scientific, and the academic method. The academic and scientific and analytical methods cannot prove to you that God exists. God Himself, by telling you He exists, can. Okay, so there are lots of people who have applied the divine method, asking if God exists. And they become atheist. Okay. So that that method is ineffective at arriving well, at whether God says, exists or not. There are people who study calculus who end up becoming uh, musicians. I mean, that, I that doesn't make any that, sense. You just, that's a fallacy. So I just showed you that if we were to look at it and say, like, let's take 100 people who are on the fence about God. Let's have 100 of them go to God in prayer and sincerity. And let's see if the divine method works. 
And the reality is we're going to have mixed results. Uh, well, the thing is, there, there's no way to quantify sincerity. There's no way to quantify what's in any of these hearts. You get me a hundred. Yeah, you people. and I both know people have become atheist after praying on their knees and with deep sincerity and and going about it the appropriate way, and that's not the answer they got. It would be unfair to say, like, no, nah, no, nah, the guys who get the right answer, those they, they did something a little different. They did it right. And the other people didn't do it right. That's not true. That's not okay. That's no. not helpful. People arrive at different answers using the divine method. It's also not how God deals with his children, because you can get a marvelous, I, I mean, I, I can look back at sem, several spiritual experiences, many of which I don't feel appropriate to talk about on podcasts. And Those I can experiences back, occur within all systems, though. Your system, your, I, I grant your experience was marvelous. All systems have people. The idea that, it, it, the fact that it... it that that that's a complete that's a complete irrelevancy as far as I'm concerned. I know, but it's not. I mean, it's not you the look at my question. spiritual experiences and say your spiritual experience is not valid because a Buddhist had a spiritual. No, experience. no, it's valid. It just isn't any good at telling you the truth of your particular religious system. It's a valid spiritual experience. It's just every every religious system has people within it who have them. It's not a valid way at arriving at the truth. If I have a hundred people pray in various religious systems, some will get no answers, some will get an answer, some will be told their religion's true, some will be told their religion's not true. It's not an accurate way. It's, it, it, the, the mode is ineffective. The, the mode is not ineffective. People are ineffective. People are so, so then Mormons could get answers that the Mormon church is true, and it, and it could be them that is getting the no, wrong answer. Which, the, the example you gave me is the example of somebody who prays and they get an answer, and then they later become an atheist. And you think that invalidates the divine method. Well, some people are told the Catholic Church is true. Some people are told the Muslim Church is true. And sometimes those people become atheists. I, 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 well, sometimes atheists are decided atheists, and they had spiritual uh, awakening to that, and then they come back into religion. And right. it doesn't well, necessarily the, the history. Moments. The history of the LDS Church shows you people, you, the, all three witnesses ended up leaving the church. Two of them end up coming back. But the reality is that a spiritual experience... Um, does not eliminate human agency and the ability to get frustrated and the ability to come back and question that experience later. I mean, if I were to leave the church, I would, I would end up having to figure out a way to sort of discount or reinterpret my spiritual experiences and say, oh, well, that must have just been confirmation bias or that must just have been something else. Or it could have been a real spiritual experience, but God works with the context of the system that you're in. Well, I'm not in other words, God could exist, and maybe Mormonism is just a stone in the path along a greater journey. I, I, it, is, I, it is not my goal or my purpose in any way to try to invalidate anybody's spiritual experiences outside of the church. I don't see how that's helpful. I don't see how a discussion about that somehow invalidates the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on any level whatsoever. Or invalidates any other religious system. Or invalidates atheism. But, but that's, that's not the point. I, it's I, only not the point because it doesn't lead to the place we want it to lead. Again, if we well, use it's, any... It's a completely separate discussion. It's not that it doesn't lead to the place we want it to lead. If we use any I, level... I, if, I, if I pray and I get an answer that the Book of Mormon is true... 
And that answer anchors me in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is not in any way a persuasive argument to say, Muslims believe the Quran is true. And I look at that and say, well, good for Muslims. I'm glad they believe the Quran is true. I'm glad that's giving them some kind of connection to the divine. And, and, I mean, you, you keep talking about that as if that somehow says, well, the Book of Mormon can't be true because Muslims believe the Quran is true. No, only that we ought to be open to the fact that spiritual experiences run across the spectrum in various systems. And so hence, my spiritual experience within my system is no more valid than someone else's spiritual ex experience, and that some people searching for a spiritual experience with absolutely full intent of heart are led outside of uh, religiosity and, and become atheists. Like, there's no... Any way in which we observe it and try to qualify it and quantify it it has absolutely mixed results, and only when we place it in the sphere of subjectiveness and allow somebody else's answer to not necessarily disrupt our answer does this thing hold any value. It it becomes a very complicated way to say, like, look, this works. Pray about Mormonism. Pray about the Book of Mormon. This works. But somehow, everywhere else, it's something other and maybe somebody's being told, for instance, that their answer to a prayer that they should be Muslim is only a stepping stone to Mormonism. They were given a degree of truth. Well, I don't want to apply that to myself. I don't want to tell myself that Mormonism is only a degree of truth, like Mormonism is the true and living church of Jesus Christ. So it becomes complicated when we try to use those other three methods, and the only way it works is if we allow the divine method to trump those three when those three are pointing at something different. That's all I'm saying. No, and, those, those, but, but, but the thing is, what you're trying to do is use those three to objectively quantify the subjective, and that's not, it's simply not possible. Yeah, and the those three methods are not equipped to do that. Yeah. We cannot measure the sincerity of anybody's faith in any kind of scientifically objective, measurable way. It is not possible. It is a, a science is not a tool designed to do that. Right. So there's so, no there's no way in which either one of us can promise that the divine method works. No, there is. What I can say to people, and what I do say to people, and what members of the church say to people, is uh, I have had this experience. Uh, I invite you to reach out to God and see if you have a similar experience. And I ask you to pray about the Book of Mormon. And if, and I am confident because he has told me it is true. I am confident he will say the same thing. And if now, he if doesn't, back, is say, their answer just as valid as your answer? Are you willing to grant them the space that their answer is just as valid? And are you willing to acknowledge, like, maybe your answer could be wrong because other people have just as strong an experience within their religion? Is it possible, like, is, is just the Mormon experience true, or could the Mormon experience be wrong? Like, you know, if somebody has a spiritual experience within Scientology, that Scientology says, like, like look, man, I feel, I feel like there's some divine force working inside me, and it leads me to say Scientology is true. Are you willing to grant, like, maybe your Mormon experience is, is just like theirs? Scient well, Scientology is a bad example because Scientology doesn't even believe in a god. Scientology, sure, pick a, again, pick a break-off group. Uh, I mean, pick, there's pick a whole Centennial other issue Park. there, and, and that gets back to some of the things we talked about in our previous Sure, pick Centennial Park. I mean, again, this, okay, this isn't... Okay, Centennial Park is a better analogy. Yeah, this isn't the, easy. The thing is, none of us are in a position to be able to judge somebody else's subjective experience with God. 
I mean, so if somebody comes back and says, well, I prayed about the Book of Mormon and I received an answer that it's not true, um, I, there, there's no possible way I can reach into their soul and say, you're wrong, that's not the answer you got, or you're lying to me. I mean, there, there's there's no possible way I can do that. Yeah, but here's, but, here's, the, here's the complication. What I do is say, okay, if somebody comes and says that, then I need to give up my spiritual witness that the Book of Mormon is true. No, but, but us I, missionaries, we I, ask people to give up their spiritual experiences and other systems all the time. So it's one thing for us to say like, hey, you Catholic, here's the restored gospel. We'd like you, and again, we don't say it this way, but in reality, what we're asking them to do is to question their spiritual experience within Catholicism and see if Mormonism has something more to offer. What we don't do in Mormonism is challenge Mormons to question their spiritual experience and see if anybody else has something more to offer. It doesn't work both ways, but what you're saying is that the answers are so subjective that... Again, it just feels completely unfair. By, by subjective, I mean there's there's no. It, it, it's like saying, you know, uh, how do I know your redness is like my redness? When you look at something and say that's red, I have no idea of knowing that what you say is red is what I would say is red. When I say subjective, I don't mean unreliable. I mean there's just simply no way to objectively verify. Which means it's unreliable. I, no, it's not at all unreliable any more than your perception of redness is unreliable. Yeah. You know what redness is. You can point at it and say, that's redness. And I can say, well, how do I know your redness isn't like my greenness? And there's no possible way that science can demonstrate to you that when you look at something that's red, you're perceiving the same color I'm perceiving. There's no possible way to do that. I know. So, so the answer to an unreliable experience, a subjective experience, is an experience that is only something that the individual who has had it can can fully understand. Uh, that's not the same thing as saying it's unreliable. It's entirely different. It's um, my spiritual experiences are my most are the most reliable experiences that I have had in mortality, and I I see the. The fact that I cannot invalidate or I cannot objectively evaluate anybody else's spiritual experience in no way um, erodes the reliability of the spiritual experiences that I've had in this life. I, 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 we're talking about two fundamentally different things. The fact that science cannot evaluate a person's inner heart, you know, a person's qualia, which is the consciousness version of it. The, the, the fact that science can't do that does not mean that a person's qualia doesn't exist. It doesn't mean redness doesn't exist. It doesn't mean spiritual experiences don't exist. And unfortunately, my time's up. So I, I, and again, I wish I had another half hour because what I would do right here is just kind of end this and, and move on to a space where we're, we're kind of happier with each other. I'm not, and again, I'm not mad at well, you. I'm not, I, I'm not upset with I know, you. I, 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 I feel that though. And I don't want you to, I don't want it to end that way. I, I want the audience to recognize like, look, I think this was a, a, a conversation around data that people have to wrestle with. And so the listener has to decide like, oh, should my spiritual experience within Mormonism should I should I hold tight to that if if I'm willing to concede that other people have different answers in other systems and people in my system get different answers as well? And I think that's the wrestle. 
And I think let's let people make that decision on their own. Um, I do want to say, let me just finish. I've, I'm actually like someone's going to knock on my door here in two seconds. Uh, I want to say thank you. I hope that the fact that this isn't comfortable doesn't lead you to not having further conversations like this with people. You're welcome on this podcast anytime. I don't think it fares well for orthodoxy, but, but, I, but I don't think either one, you or I are fans of orthodoxy anyway. I think that needs changes, and I think you, you and I both have argued that. I want to say thank you. I think you're a, 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 just an incredible human being, and I've appreciated the conversation. And I think the world of you, and I have not a drop to say negative. I hope in all of this you've seen me be extremely positive towards you and towards your character uh, as these conversations have taken place and uh, afterward out in the public arena. Well, I, I, I hope you don't feel like I'm angry with you personally. I, I, I appreciated this opportunity. Uh, I think this was a positive experience. I, I have nothing negative to say about you personally. Uh, incidentally, I should probably just tell you that uh, in a couple of hours, I'm going to be having lunch uh, with Jeremy Runnels. Uh, he reached out to me in the course of this podcast, and we went back and forth a little bit and decided we should sit down and talk to each other. So uh, at an undisclosed location. Sure, beautiful. Put- yeah, you don't want 45 people showing up. <laughs> beautiful. And I, and I think that's great. And I think the better we can get at debating the data, but doing it by talking to each other and hearing each other, I think the better off we are. And so I want to say, Jim, you've done what nobody else was willing to do. And for that, every every person who's listening should thank you and applaud you uh, for having the the um, character that you presented through all of this, as well as the willingness to continue to carry this conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Have an awesome day, my friend. You too, sir. Never